Other leaders have asked me to preach from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Please be seated. Well, many of you might be like me in this way, that if you have things that you enjoy in this life, you delight to share them with others. There are many things I personally enjoy, and I have added joy when other people enjoy what I enjoy. Um, so, of course, my first love is Christ, and I love uh, sharing Christ with others. But if they are Christians, then I could share with them um, my love for food, certain kinds of food, certain desserts, certain movies and books, songs, and of course, the Los Angeles Lakers the best team in Los Angeles right now. <laughs> we'll see in a few months, but right now, they're the better team. So we met up with a family um, a few weeks ago, and they're a family with six kids. We finally found that one family with more kids than us, and so we thought we have to get together, and they're becoming very dear to us. But they're very opposite to us. They are blonde hair and blue eyes, and they are a surfing family. They all go to the beach and surf. Very different. And they're godly, godly people. And so they're Christians. That's gone. So my second question is, have you ever had Korean food? And they said, no. I'm like, I feel sadness for them. Because <laughs> you really haven't lived, at least until you had Asian cuisine, if not Korean food. And so we're having lunch together. And I tell them, well, you're providing lunch. We'll bring dessert. Have you ever had melon bars? And they said, no. I feel greater sorrow in my heart. You haven't had, I'm sure some of you haven't had melon bars too. That's, you gotta go get some this afternoon. Um, we'll bring dessert. So we bring melon bars, and after lunch, we all have it together, and you can see their eyes light up. I think I saw tears streaming down from some of the kids. Because it is just so good. It's magical, right? So we bought three boxes. They've got six kids. We've got five. That's 11 kids plus four adults. There's three bars left, right? 
Um, and I said, well, we'll be generous. You guys keep them here. It's for you to enjoy. She texted us or emailed us later how uh, she had one by herself without sharing it with the kids, and she can't wait to have it again. That, is, um, that brings me so much joy. Well, I share that to share with you. That is uh, Apostle John's heart in writing this epistle. Right? Does that connect, right? <laughs> Why is John writing this letter? If you go to chapter 1 of 1 John, he says, I write these things to you, so that your joy, that our joy, excuse me, may be complete. He had just talked about how uh, he knows Jesus personally. I am speaking to you, which we have heard, verse 1. We have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Verse 2, we have seen it and we proclaim this to you. So John has this great joy of knowing Jesus, having fellowship with God the Father and Jesus the Son personally. But for John, his joy is not complete. His joy is complete by sharing this with the readers. And that is his motivation for writing this epistle because he wants believers to, to know Christ intimately and personally as well. In fact, in his third epistle, chapter 1, verse 4, he wrote, I have no greater joy in my life than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. For the apostle John, this dear, beloved saint, this, this, this godly man, his greatest joy in the world was to hear that people are following and walking with Jesus Christ, our Lord. That was his greatest thrill. And we understand this, do we not? We read this, and every Christian in this room understands what he's talking about. Because we experience similar joy. When we hear about people coming to Christ, when we have fellowship and we hear someone who's growing in their love in Christ, we experience that same joy. Recently, I heard of two people coming to faith in Christ. Two people who were lost, being saved. And that filled my heart with so much delight, so much encouragement. It fueled my, my desire all the more for Christ and for the cause of Christ in this world. Now, with that joy, very soon after comes... Um, Concern. It is, I would say, always followed by concern. There is a sense of unease, a feeling of being unsettled, maybe even fear, uh, because you are concerned whether this initial profession of faith, if that's genuine or not, if it's true faith or spurious faith if this work of God was indeed a God's work or man's work, right? This whole Tim Tebow thing is going on, and I fear next year every football player is going to be a godly man, right? Every football player is going to be praying and talking about Jesus because Tim Tebow was 7-1. Right? I remember f feeling this when my dad came to Christ many years ago, and when he professed faith in Christ, 
unequal joy. I don't think I've ever experienced such joy over someone coming to Jesus Christ. Um, I think it'll be only equaled by if God allows our children to come to faith. But at the same time, there was so much fear in my heart. I almost didn't allow myself to give in to this joy because I don't know if I could handle the disappointment if this was a false conversion. It was a foxhole conversion. He's going through a difficult time, so he's just externally saying the right things. Because we know anybody can pray the prayer, and you're not saved by praying the prayer. You're not saved by saying the right things or doing the right things. You're saved by grace through faith. So I remember for a year or two, just waiting and praying and and asking God for, for true faith to be revealed in his life. And when I saw um, more and more of that, my joy was complete. Well, that's John, Apostle John's concern for the readers and his concern and our concern for our church. Our joy is made complete when there is a profession of faith, but also accompanying fruits that validate that this faith is indeed true and genuine. There are many, um, um, many proofs or traits that reveal whether a person has true faith or not. John, throughout this epistle, addresses um, many characteristics by their presence and absence reveal whether a, person, whether a person is truly a Christian or not. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we are lying and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all our sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, if we deny that we are sinners, then we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Next chapter, chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, another, um, uh, another proof of true or false salvation. By this we know that we have come to know him, verse 3. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know God, anybody can say that. But if it's accompanied by a lack of keeping his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
these traits, these qualities reveal the true condition of a person's heart. They reveal whether their profession is true or false. It cannot be hidden over time. And therefore, he calls upon his readers to consider these and to run to Christ, to desperately cling to Christ and trust in the gospel. Now, all these are important things to consider, but for John, there is one key quality that stands head and shoulders above the rest in terms of how it reveals true faith from false faith. The absence of this quality reveals that this is not a true work of God. This is not genuine faith. Conversely, the presence of this testifies that God has done a, a miraculous work of salvation in this person's life. What is this overarching quality, the most definitive quality that reveals a person's heart condition? It is uh, the enduring and selfless love for fellow Christians. A growing and generous, heartfelt, and immensely practical love for fellow Christians is the clearest mark of true faith. If this is absent, then no matter what you say, no matter how loudly you proclaim it, you do not know God. But if this is present, it can mean only one thing. You are a genuine believer. 1 John 2, 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. This old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is always shining. Whoever says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is still in darkness. And that hatred we know, uh, the opposite of love is not, the idea is not hatred, but it's apathy. Right? A lack of care, a lack of concern. That's the idea of hatred here. Right? If you say you're walking in the light, and yet your heart is not moved for love for fellow Christians. You're not burdened for them. There is no care, there is no concern. You don't rejoice with them. You don't grieve with them. They're in need and your heart has no compassion whatsoever. And John is saying clearly that means you are still in darkness. You are deceived and you are a liar. Whoever loves his brother, verse 10, is not a physical sibling, but the spiritual family of God, a fellow Christian. Whoever loves his Christian abides in the light. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, does not know where he's going because the darkness of his heart has blinded him. 1 John 3:11. this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. How do we know this? How can we be certain that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers, we love fellow Christians. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother 
is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know that, by this we know love, verse 16, that he laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for fellow Christians. But if anyone has world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's impossible. Look, Jesus gave his life for us, so we ought to give his life for one another. And yet you are rich, and your brother in Christ is poor, and your heart is not moved to give him a penny. When Jesus gave his life for you, how, can, how is it possible that you are a Christian? It is an impossibility. And then 1 John 4, 19 through 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen with his own eyes, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. Well, our passage is all about this. Verses 7 through 12. In this passage, we find why this singular trait of Christian love so clearly separates sheep from the goats. We discover why love for fellow believers is always the consequent result it always accompanies saving faith in Jesus. This is always, in a profound way, in a growing way, present in every believer. Look, the church is diverse, right? In terms of our ethnicity, our culture, our tradition, our preferences, our convictions, our personalities, our characteristics, the church is diverse, we are all different. It's a global movement. But every true Christian in every part of this world has this quality in their lives. And that's love for the brethren, love for fellow believers. In six verses, we find the word love 13 times. It's all about how this reveals where we stand before God. How we relate to one another reveals our status, our position, and our relationship with God right now. Look at verse 7. John begins this section with the word beloved. Now he is doing two things by this. He is telling them you are loved by God. You are loved ones. You are beloved by God and know this. And secondly, beloved means you have my love. John is practicing what he preaches. I, I am coming to you as someone who loves you, who is for you, who, who is on your side. John reminds them that the command that is upon them is upon him as well, and he is practicing what he is commanding them. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for, the, for this love is from God. That reflexive phrase, let us love one another, occurs three times in these six verses. Verse 11, it is an exhort. Verse 7, it's a command. Verse 11, it's a statement of duty. Verse 12, it's a hypothesis. If we love one another, this is the result. So John has in mind this idea of one another. This phrase occurs 54 times in the New Testament. 
one another. This tells us that the Christian experience is in a community. It's communal. It's not individual. I've said this so many times. Salvation is individual. But Christian life, sanctification is always in the context of community. Yes, we know relationships are hard, they're messy, they're difficult. It is easy to keep our guard up, to relate to people via just Facebook, emails, and text messages. And we want to keep it at distance from people because we don't want to get hurt. Well, New Testament knows no such thing as Christianity. Christianity is always one another. It's highly relational. It's highly based on our relationship with one another. John's exhortation is for Christians to love Christians, and he includes himself. Uh, This was written around AD 90. Gospel of John was the last gospel to be written. John dies at AD 95. He is an aged man. He's an older pastor, older man of God. And he says, I haven't taken hold of this yet. I have not fulfilled this command. I am still striving to love one another. This insists that this love must be mutual, must flow freely in both directions. It must come from both sides, the two-way street, unilaterally. We talked last week about our relationships, how most of our relationships are consumer relationships. So anytime the other party um, doesn't fulfill to your satisfaction, we drop that relationship. We're used to that with most of our relationships. You know, the illustration that came to mind in our servant service is my internet browser. I was committed to Internet Explorer for many years, and I discovered Firefox. It's free. Wow, what a great service. And then Chrome came along. I dropped Firefox, now I'm onto Chrome. And I'm not committed to Google Chrome, right? If Facebook comes up with a better Internet Explorer, I'm going to drop Chrome. Why? Because it's a purely consumer relationship. At any time someone brings a better product, I am jumping ship. There is no loyalty. But not in the family and not in the church, not in a husband and wife relationship. The husband doesn't say to the wife, I'll start being selfless as soon as she starts being selfless, right? I'll start loving her once she A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, I can go all the way to Z, right? And the wife could say, I'll respect my husband as soon as, man, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, (laughs) to infinity, right? No, that's not how a covenant relationship works. You promise, you make a vow on your wedding day, not that you love that person, that's the reason for marriage. No, you vow, I will love you. Right? I will be there. Right? Richer for poorer, right? Through, through health and sickness, for the thick and the thin, I will be there. This is my unilateral vow, covenant before God and man to you, unto the Lord. And whether you are Worthy of it or not, whether you are respectable or not, whether you fulfill your obligations or not, I am committed to you on both parties, likewise with the Christian relationship. We are to love, it's love one another unilaterally. A call to a high and unselfish love, which first 
independently seeks the, the true welfare of the one who is being loved. How is this possible? Because this love is from God. Look at verse 8. In verse, verse 7, this love is from God. In the Greek, there is an article before the word love. The love is from God. Right? It's, it's a specific love. It's a unique love. This is unlike any love you find in the world. Where in John 15, 19, the natural love that the world has for its own. Or Matthew 5, 46, where tax collectors love other tax collectors. You go into any community in this world, and you'll see a semblance through common grace, a love for one another. But the Bible says, no, that is not Christian love. That love is based on ego or pride or selfishness or vanity or, 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 or sensuality or some kind of uh, ego or, or self, self at the center of it. That is not Christian love. In the, in the Christian community, this love is unique because the source of it is not us. It's not produced by us. And it's not because anyone is deserving of this love. No, this is the love that is from God. The source is God himself. We receive it from God. That's why we, we can love one another freely, generously, and unilaterally. And then John connects this love that believers have with one's relationship with God. Verse 7b, whoever loves has been born of God. John is saying, if you have this love, then it is a result of regeneration. You have been born of God. You have been born again. If you have this love for fellow Christians, it can only mean one thing. It means that the Spirit of God broke through your hearts and you've been born again. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. That has occurred in your life and now you are a member of God's family. The word born is in the perfect tense. It has already happened. So love is the outward sign of this new birth that has already occurred. It is the irrefutable evidence that you who are dead in trespass, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, you are dead in sin. There was no spiritual life whatsoever. This is proof that there is life now if you love fellow Christians. The presence of active, sacrificial, enduring love is a sign of regeneration. And not only that, verse 7c, whoever loves also knows God. This presence of love is a sign of having personally, having, having a personal knowledge of God, having a personal experience of God. You know, the, I've said this several times as well. In the Greek, there are two words for knowledge, oida and gnosko. Oida is just intellectual knowledge, right? Intellectual knowledge of a fact or a reality. Gnosko is a subjective knowledge through experience. This is seen in John chapter 13, verse 7, when Jesus washed, approached Peter to wash his feet. And Peter said, Lord, you wash my feet? And Jesus said, Peter, you don't oida, but you will gnosko. Peter, you don't know what this is about, but you will 
by my death and resurrection the Holy Spirit, you will understand. You will, you will know what I'm doing. And in so doing, you will, you will serve and love others. Right? If you love one another, that means you have gnosko God. You have a personal experience. You have personal, intimate knowledge of God's love. Look, anybody can study the love of God and explain and teach the love of God. Anyone can write a book on God's love. Non-believers can preach great sermons on God's love. Satan himself knows more about God's love than anyone in this room, everyone in this room. But Satan has no idea what God's love is. He doesn't know God personally. If you love fellow Christians, that means you have come to this subjective knowledge of God. In verse 8, the converse is true. Anyone who does not love does not know God. So a lack of Christian love, no matter how loud your profession, how strongly, passionately you profess faith in Christ, no matter how many books you read, how long you've been in the church, if, you, if a, there's an absence of love for Christians, then this is a simple past tense, knows that, that profession was just external. It, was, it wasn't a heart change. It was disingenuous. It was not a work of the Holy Spirit. It was a work of the Spirit of the flesh. It was merely a, 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 a mental assent to doctrinal truth when love for believers is absent. Now, how can John make such a dogmatic and absolute statement? How can he say this? That if you don't love Christians, you're, you don't know God? That you're not a believer? How can he say this? He's able to say this because... His next phrase, because God is love. God is love. If you know God, if you've experienced God, your heart will be filled with his love. And you cannot help but love fellow Christians. It is an impossibility. Just like you cannot go up in space, stand next to the sun without being burned. Why? Because the sun is hot. You will be burned. Likewise, as the sun is hot, God is love. John 4, 24, God is spirit. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Therefore, God is love. And if you know this God who is love, you know him, your heart will be filled with love for fellow believers who have also received this love. It's impossible not to love. Because you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's stubborn, it's irresistible, it's overwhelming. It's a power that cannot be restrained in your heart if you have known God. John is not here identifying a quality that God possesses. He's making a statement about the essence of God's being. What is God? God is love. This triune God for eternity. 
experience this dynamic love within that trinity where the father loved the spirit father loved the son the spirit loved the father spirit loved the son the son loved the father and son loved the spirit and through the cross it's been manifested to us and therefore this love has been poured out to every single christian this reality has been poured out into our hearts therefore christians love one another this is where we look to to see god's love this is where god's love is manifested in the greatest way in the greatest manner verse 9 in this the love of god was made manifest among us that god sent his only son into the world this is a favorite word of uh, this dear apostle John. Manifest, fanero, means to make visible, invisible, visible. It is to show, to make known, reveal the true character. It is to, to, to uh, uh, make it appear. So it is through the person and work of Christ, God's love appeared to us. It is through Jesus Right, John 1, 18, no one has seen God, but God, the only Son, who has made him known. Jesus revealed God's love to us. And through the cross, we know his love that's been manifested to us. It is in Jesus, God's message of love reached its climax God sent his only son into the world. This is the heart behind Christmas. Right? This is the reality behind this season. Why did Jesus, why was he born? What is the meaning of Christmas? Why did God leave his heavenly kingdom and humble himself on a manger and tabernacle among us for a while? It's because of God's great love for us. He, God gave his, his only son, Monogenes, so that we might live through him, that we might have this life. Life is relationship with God, that we might be abiding and connected with God. And then just in case there's any confusion in verse 10, John makes it clear in the very next verse that God gave us this life, not because of our love for God, but because of his love for us. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved with us. The initiative is entirely God's. He knew us before the foundation of the world. He knew your name. And he loved you. He chose you. He is not responding to our love. He's not meeting us halfway. No, we were dead in our sins. We were enemies of God. We were rebels among the throngs who cried out, crucify Jesus. If you listen carefully, you will hear your voices by your sins. But God, knowing all of that, he knew us and he loved us and therefore he sent his son and this is love in that he loved us and therefore he sent his son to be 
the propitiation for our sins. That's an important word. Sounds like a word that's too heavy in theology or doctrine for us to really want to, to you know, to, to garner our attention, but it's worthy of our attention. G.I. Packer was asked, how would you describe Christianity? And he said, I would, I would describe Christianity with three words, adoption through propitiation. Someone asked him, is propitiation important to Christianity? He, would, he said, it's the heart of the gospel. It's heart of Christianity. It comes from an old English word, means to appease Jesus was the sacrifice that appeased God's wrath. That was where we, that was our predicament. Because of our sins, God's wrath remained on us. We were the objects of God's righteous, unbridled anger and wrath. And nothing in us could appease him. And nothing we did could appease him. No amount of good works could satisfy God's justice because not only because the greatness of our sins, but because the perfection of God's holiness, nothing could satisfy him. But because God's love for us, what did he do? He did what we were helpless to do. He sent his son, the perfect, righteous, sinless God, and he was not just a propitiator. He was not just a priest who would go and make sacrifices to atone for the sins of Israel. He was not just a propitiator. He was the sacrifice. He was the propitiation. Where when he came upon the altar, he didn't bring an animal. He laid himself down. He sacrificed himself. He was our substitute. And he received God's judgment and wrath on our behalf because of God's love for us. He is the propitiation for our sins whereby through his death and resurrection, we have the remission of our sins the complete forgiveness of our sins, where God declares us righteous, justified, forgiven. And that's what believers will hear on that day of judgment. Instead of hearing the words that we deserve to hear, guilty, like hell forever, eternal banishment, away from me, you workers of iniquity. That's what we deserve. Instead, he will say, beloved, you are righteous, you are justified. Enter into your rest, my good and faithful servant. Now through the gospel, we hear that verdict today where we hear there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what God has done for us in Christ. He did all of this. Jesus made full atonement for our sins. Why? Again, because of God's love for us. J. Dwight Pentecost said this, the death of Jesus Christ did not change the heart of God as if one who hated us now loves us. Rather, it opened the floodgates of God so that the love of God for sinners could be poured out to them through Jesus Christ. Right? It didn't change God's heart. He always loved us. But we rejected his love. And sin separated us from God. Now through Christ, the floodgates has been opened where he poured out and he pours out his love to our hearts. Therefore, 
verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, a first-class conditional sentence meaning it's not a rhetorical question. No, no, it, it is a reality. God has so, like, highlight, underline, circle, bracket, make an arrow to that word so. If God so loved us, what is this so? Meaning the death of his only son. If God has so loved us and this love has been poured out into our hearts, what is the the command, what is the consequent result, what is the imperative, we also ought to love one another. John has now immensely strengthened his case and our motivation. His blood flowed for our forgiveness in view of the mercy of God. What is our duty? What is our obligation? What is God's holy command for Christians? Is to love one another. 2 Corinthians 5.14, love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It constrains us. It empowers us. It motivates us. It's the word suneco. It means to press. It means to seize. It's the word that Paul used in Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed. It's the word that Luke used in in Luke 8.23, the gathering demoniac. Right? How many demons are there? There are legions of demons. So Jesus sends these demons to herd of pigs. They commit suicide. The town is seized with fear. They're terrified. And they ask Jesus to leave. They're compelled with fear. They're overcome with fear. And they order Jesus to leave. That's Suneco there. And that's the power of God's love, Christ's love in us. It seizes Christians. It overwhelms us. It dominates believers when we understand who God is, that he is love, and that he has always loved us, and that we have spurned his love, and through the cross, the floodgates has been opened, and he has poured out his love through the death of his one and only son. This love comes into our hearts, and it grips us. It's, it's unrelenting. It's irresistible. It, it over, overcomes our lives, where our lives slowly, gradually, but clear arc it dominates and our focus of our lives our reality becomes centered around fellow christians everything else is child's play everything else we let go because god's love is takes over our hearts and we love the brethren that is why john says beloved if god has so loved us we also ought to love one another This duty to love is not a condiment or we sprinkle on to other commands in the scriptures. No, it is the main command. It is the law of love. Galatians 5, 6, circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is faith working itself out of love for fellow believers. Well, the question is, then what about unbelievers? What about making disciples of all nations. What about global evangelization? John says, I'm glad you asked. The message of the gospel is to be spoken and experienced. It is not enough just to proclaim the gospel. Unbelievers must hear the gospel and they must see it. They must touch it. They must experience this love where? In the body of Christ. 
This is where God manifests himself. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John is saying, no one has ever seen God, but for three and a half years, you could see God. How? If you're alive 2,000 years ago in Israel, you could say, you want to see God? Go see Jesus. You want to hear God? Go hear Jesus. You want to touch God? Touch Jesus. You want to experience God? Go experience Jesus. But after three and a half years, he ascended into heaven. He is no longer here. Where can unbelievers go to see God, hear God, experience God? John is saying, tell them to come to the church. And when Christians love one another, God abides in them. God is here. We are the body of Christ. You want to know God, come to the church to hear the gospel, but also experience the gospel as Christians love one another. It's when we love one another, are from the heart, are sacrificially, generously, practically, honestly, with vulnerability. When we love one another in this way, it becomes, as Francis Schaeffer had said, the ultimate apologetic, the ultimate confirmation of the gospel message that God is true, that the gospel is real. All right, John 13, 34, 35, by this all men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. This is how God manifests himself. This is how disciples are made. This is how the world is evangelized by local Christians, Christians in a local church loving one another. And through this, his love is perfected in us. This is the goal of God's love. This is the purpose of God's love. Why did God love us? so that we will love one another, right? It's so profound, but it's so simple, but so profound. So when we love one another, God's love is reaching, it's, it's accomplishing its purpose. It's reaching its goal. That's the purpose for which God sent his son. Now let me apply this to our hearts. There are, there are three challenges here, right? three challenges here. The first and the greatest challenge is to, I mean, really believe God loves us. Not through experience. That's where we, we go astray, right? We are to experience God, but not through experience. We are to know God through the gospel, and the experience is the result, right? But to believe to know, to accept that God loves us and that we are righteous in his sight, that we are his children, that all our sins are forgiven, that there is no need for shame or guilt as a Christian because of God's love for us. That's the greatest challenge. That is the hardest thing, and I fight that every single day. But that's not the only challenge. The second challenge is to respond to that love because you discover that love, then you want to be like Peter in the Mount of Transfiguration. Let me build a tent up here, right, in my room, and I'll just commune with God alone, right? I'm going to just, you know, talk to people via Facebook, uh, reach out, evangelism by dropping tracts, you know, I'll just send money, and I don't want to get personally involved, and I want to protect myself, so on this small, like, area of my life, I'll, I'll, I'll disconnect myself and enjoy God by myself. The second challenge is, no, 
I, as John said, I've, I know, I fellowship with him, and my joy is not complete until you know God as well. That second step is to live in the shadow of this mountain of God's grace. And so moved by that, you immerse yourself, and you commit to fellow Christians, and you love them, and you get your hands dirty, and your heart hurt. That is the second challenge. But the third challenge is loving one another in spirit and in truth. Loving one another with wisdom. Loving one another with Christian love and biblical love. And this is a significant challenge as well. And now here I come with that same story again. I have no other story. This is my only story I have. It works for me, that's why I share it with you. And I know it's, it's tiring you, but you just have to accept it. Just, just accept. That's, that's the way it's going to be, you know, until Christ returns, right? So when, when I start dating my wife, <laughs> you know where I'm going to go with this, right? And I, I, man, I went head over heels for my wife. My first gift to my wife was? Everybody knows, right? <laughs> my second gift to my wife was? Because, and I look back, I'm so ashamed because that's, I wasn't loving her. That was all ego, right? I was loving myself. I wanted her to enjoy what I enjoy. I wanted her love to center around me. It was the most selfish thing. That I had no love for her. It was just love for myself. You know, one of the things I did on our date, I took, brought her to my home, and I made her watch a, a Springsteen video anthology <laughs> from 1970 to 87, like 14 videos of Bruce Springsteen, because I, I don't know why. I, Springsteen does it for me. I want her, and I made her watch the whole thing, and I thought she enjoyed it, but it was torture for her. You know, same heat that melts but her hardens clay. Serene's heart is hardened towards Springsteen. Right? She hates him because of me. Right? But in my heart at that time, I thought I was loving her, right? I thought I was like really serving her. No, it's not love, right? We need to look at what is Christian love. We must define Christian love according to the Bible and not ourselves. And the, the best place to go is 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, if you turn there, verses 4 through 7, describes genuine Christian love. The Corinthians were saying that they were pneumatical. They were spiritual. They know love. They're a loving community. They're filled with love. And Paul's saying, no, you know nothing of love. Right? There is no love here. Right? You are an awful church. You need to repent. And he says, what you're doing is not love. Let me show you what love is. Now, this is how deceitful our hearts are. We, we use the Bible as a magnifying glass instead of a mirror. So we get a list like this, and what do we do? We use it as a magnifying glass, and we look at specks in people's eyes and make it into a boulder. We say, oh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, this is not how my parents loved me. I'm a victim. This is my wife's problem, right? This is my husband. He's not doing this, right? My, my, my fellow believers, they're not doing this, and we use the Bible to judge others, and that's a misuse of the law, misuse of instruction, James 2, the, James 1, the Bible is a mirror to be used for ourselves, to look at ourselves. Our heart is so deceived. I find myself constantly doing this. Do not use 1 Corinthians 13 to judge others. Use 1 Corinthians 13 to look at yourself. 
series of 15 verbs and Paul describes Christian love and how he describes it for us so that we might grow in this way. Well, go through this one by one. Love is patient. First thing about love is patient. It's macrothumos, macrothume, which is long-suffering. The idea is it's hard to get you upset because you love that person. It takes a lot to get you riled up. You will suffer and suffer and suffer and your heart still is loving. The opposite is, man, you're easily provoked. You get upset, really, you get angry. Right? You got a hair trigger temper. A slight thing and you explode and blow it out of proportion. Right? You are impatient. You're short suffering. You don't want to suffer. Any inconvenience, any suffering, you have a temper tantrum. Christian love is long suffering. You will suffer and suffer and suffer for a long time. Right? Secondly, love is kind. It's, it's the idea of gentle, obliging, willing to help or assist. It's being agreeable. It's being polite, courteous, accommodating. It's other-centered, not self-centered. These two positives are followed by seven verbs that indicate how love does not behave. Love does not envy. And that is so revealing. You're not jealous. You're not envious. There is no rivalry or contentiousness. There is no strife that comes from you're sizing each other up. You're measuring each other. and you're, you're, there's, there's a sense where I'm better than you in these ways, but you're better than me, so I'm jealous for you. And there is strife and anger in your heart. That's not love. Love does not boast. Only time this word occurs in the New Testament, it's the idea of speaking arrogantly. It is in your words where you're boasting and bragging, where you come together in fellowship and all you're doing is using people, right? You're using that fellowship because you're talking about your gifts, abilities, your godliness, your achievements, your successes, your possessions. You're using people as a means for your own glory, right? You're bragging. You're using people as a means to stroke your own ego. Fifthly, love is not arrogant, Literal word meaning is inflated, puffed up. Figuratively, it means conceited, proud. Six word, love is not rude, behaving shamefully or disgracefully. King James Version has the word unseemly. Seventh, love does not insist on its own way. NIV, I like the way NIV translates, love is not self-seeking. So there, love is not, so you're not seeking your own way your own comfort, your own ease, your own preferences. Your interest is towards others. Eighth, love is not irritable. NIV says easily angered. Irritable is, 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 a, is a better translation. Right? You're not easily irritated. And so some people, like, just by their personality, just by their upbringing, just by their whatever, they irritate us. They get under our skin. They provoke us. And then we have a tendency of blaming that person. Why is that person so irritable? Right? Or the soul, it's, it's the provoking, abrasive personality. And we blame them for our sin. And that's not love. Right? Love overlooks an offense. Does not take things personally. It's not easily provoked. Ninth one is uh, love is not resentful. 
NIV has a better translation here. It keeps no record of wrongs. Right? There's a word here. It's an accounting term. So you don't keep a track of people's wrongs against you. And you have this long ledger with all their offenses and sins. And you write it down, put it in your mental hard drives so that you, you keep a record of this. That's not love. Love keeps no record of such a thing. It erases it consistently. 10th and 11, it's a pair. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. I mean, I, I, I just thought about King David. And here is Saul pursuing him and attempting to kill him many times. David spared his life when he had the opportunity. His own men, remember Dave came to relieve himself at the cave of Abdullam, and his own men were saying, God in his provision brought the one who's trying to murder you into this cave. Raise your hand and, and execute him because you are the rightful king of Israel. And David said, dare I take the place of God and enact judgment. And all he did was cut a corner of his cloak, and even that, his conscience was pricked. Even though Saul hated David, was jealous of him, conspired to kill him, David loved King Saul. And when this man lied, and he said he killed King Saul, thinking that he would receive a reward from David, what did David do? David had the man executed. How dare you take the place of God, enact judgment, raise your hand against God's anointed one, and he had him executed, and he wept because even the death of the one who was trying to murder him, David loved him. David did not rejoice with wrongdoing, evil, even though it came upon his enemy. Instead, rejoices with the truth. Seven through eight, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Two are present to our future. The final one is just for eternity. Presently, love bears, puts up with everything, New English Bible. There is nothing love cannot face. Presently, love believes all things, never ceases to have faith. And then future, love never gives up hope. Love never gives up. And then verse 8a, love never ends Pepte means fails or collapses. It never ceases. Uh, Paul says that, that faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest. Why? Because in heaven, no need for faith. We'll see Jesus. No need for faith. In heaven, no need for hope because all the hope is a reality in heaven. But in heaven, for eternity, there will always be love and it will always grow. Love within the Trinity, love from the Trinity, triune God to us, and love from us to one another, it will continue to increase. Now, the power to love comes from the gospel, the reality of what God has done. But how we love, the 15 descriptions here, I believe is also connected to how we believe we are and how God treats us right now. Does that make sense? Right, the power to love is from the gospel past, and the gospel future. But how we love is also connected to 
how we view ourselves right now and how we view God towards us right now. And I'll explain this. Look at verses 4 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. And replace the word love with your own name. Right? So how do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as a loving person? Now try this. And I'm going to put my name. But as I put my name, in your minds put your name. Please. Right? Don't put my name in. Right? So James is patient. Don't laugh. Okay? Right? <laughs> James is kind. James does not envy or boast. James is not arrogant. James is not rude. James does not insist on its own way. My children are like rolling their eyes right now, right? James is not irritable. James is not resentful. James keeps no record of wrongs, right? James does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but James rejoices with the truth. James bears all, James believes all things, James hopes all things, James endures all things, James's love never stops. Right. Does that help? It helps me to see how unloving I am. Right. That, uh, how my idea of my love for others is really just pretension, it's just outward, really how there's an absence of true Christian love in my heart. Does that help you? What further will help you is, how is God in Christ treating you right now? Right? Replace love with Jesus. And this is how he relates to you. Jesus is patient with you right now. He is long-suffering with you right now. He, Jesus is kind to you. Jesus doesn't envy you. He doesn't, he's for you. He doesn't want anything from you. Jesus doesn't boast. Jesus is not arrogant when he's with you. Jesus is not rude when he's with you. Jesus is not self-seeking in his relationship with you. Jesus is not irritated by you. Jesus is not keeping any record of your wrongs. Right? Only thing he sees is love towards you. Jesus does not rejoice when you're suffering. Jesus rejoices when there's truth in your life. Jesus is bearing all things for you and with you. Jesus believes in you with all things. Jesus hopes for you. Jesus endures with you. And Jesus' love for you will never end. So we can only give to others what we are receiving if we believe this is how Jesus is relating to us right now. It'll help us overcome that third challenge to love one another with a Christian love. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for uh, this wonderful passage. And Lord, in your sovereign timing, we need it as a church, and I need it in a double measure. We all need it, and we thank you for reminding us and teaching us that you are love. And it's not something to be added on to our Christian discipleship. It is our discipleship. It is our highest duty, our obligation, the highest command. It's the law of Christ. It's the law of love. So in view of God's mercy, may we love one another from our hearts because the source of it is from you. And may we love one another with Christ's love. 
how Christ loves us today, right now, may we in the same manner love one another. Lord, we come before you now in communion. And through this element of the broken bread and the, and the wine, Lord, we physically experience the cross, its resurrection, your return. Lord, may the remembrance of this great act of sacrifice because of your love move our hearts to love, to forgive, to humble ourselves, to serve one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.